the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, rocket sleds and guys in red, faint traces of iridium are a telltale sign in iridium poisoning cases. Duh. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rockia. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Christopher. Merry Christmas to you too, Tony. Happy holidays of various sorts and jingle jingle ho ho. This time we have an interview with uh, Annette Peterson. Annetta Peterson, sorry. Annetta is the author of 1635, The Wars for the Rhine, which is the latest entry in Eric Flint's 1632 universe. This is a novel about the western frontier of the United States of Europe, which is along the Rhine River, which hence the wars for the Rhine. And Netta gives us an in-depth view of the era and the novel, and she does it all in a warm, wonderful Danish accent. So stay tuned for that. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now here's the news. You did it. You waited until this weekend to finish your Christmas shopping. Or you are so super organized and on it that you want to get your gift shopping for Christmas 2017 done now. In either case, it's been a great year of excellent reading here at Bain Books. How about Spring's Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen by Lois McMaster Bujold for starters? And also out was the continuation of David Weber's multiverse series with The Road to Hell by David Weber and Joelle Presby. And speaking of David Weber, the latest standalone Honor Harrington book was, of course, released this fall, Shadow of Victory. And there was Angel Eyes, a new freehold novel for Michael Z. Williamson. Larry Crea and John Ringo teamed up to deliver two entries in the Monster Hunter memoir series, Grunge and Sinners. There was this really excellent Black Tide Rising anthology edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole over the summer. And, uh, and what else, Tony? I'm, I'm forgetting something. Oh, yes. Also out last August was my own high fantasy, The Dragon Hammer, by yours truly, Tony Daniel. This is an excellent clean teen present for the young, for the teen on your list, or the young adult, or just yourself. I knew I was forgetting something. And speaking of that, there's, uh, there's more to come. We've got uh, David Drake's RCN series' latest entry, Death's Bright Day, was a summer book. And Eric Flint and David Carrico delivered a new entry in the Zhao Empire series, which he used to write with K.D. Wentworth, Span of Empire. There was also a new Liaden Universe book, Alliance of Equals, out from Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, and many, many more. All of these are available for quick delivery or instant delivery in ebook form. And you can always buy a gift certificate at the Bain eBooks website for anyone receiving a new e-reader for the holidays. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and good reading to you now and all times to come. Even the weird ones in alternate universes where carnivorous unicorns frolic in geysers of pepsodent toothpaste and confetti made of shredded expired credit cards and alaga syrup. Alaga syrup. Alaga syrup. Don't you know anything? I don't. Why do we do that? <laughs> Nothing about alaga syrup. No. What is that? 
Uh, it's a mixture of, it's a dark cane syrup from Alabama, uh, Florida border that, that is excellent for um, syrup and butter and oh. dipping biscuits in. Well, some of us aren't from Alabama, Tim. And it comes up in great geysers um, in the alternate universe right across from Alabama called Mississippi. Oh. I want to welcome Annetta Peterson to the podcast. Hello, Annetta. Well, hello, Tony. Annetta Peterson was born and raised in Denmark, where she currently resides. She grew up reading science fiction in English and Danish due to her father's love for the genre. She's written multiple stories for anthologies, edited by Eric Flint, set in the Ring of Fire alternate history universe. Annetta is a retired geologist and micropaleontologist. She is a church accountant and deacon, as well as a keen gardener and cook. She paints botanical illustrations to professional standards, but she claims with far from professional speed. Now out at booksellers everywhere is 1635, The Wars for the Rhine by Annetta Peterson, and set in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire alternate history universe. Uh, so before we get anywhere else, what, Annetta, what does a micropaleontologist do? Well, a micropaleontologist, uh, uh, at least uh, the kind that I did, um, will date various strata, and uh, both in terms of uh, age and in terms of climate. And I worked uh, both. Uh, well, my my master degree was in um, the start of the ice ice ages. Uh, you know how quick uh, did it turn cold? Did it turn warm again? And things like that. But I've also worked uh, for petroleum exploration, where I used micropaleontologists to uh, date. Um, the, the stratas in which uh, petroleum could be found, then it's much more likely that you find a microfossil than that you find the, a bone of a dinosaur uh, that you could identify. So you uh, look at rocks under microscopes to find these uh, fossils? I, I look at rocks and search for um, small uh, shells from, um, well, a mobia uh, sort of... Uh, Chalk, chalk, chalk stones containing uh, the shells of, of a kind of amoeba uh -huh. is very useful for, for dating strata, but also change with the climate. Uh -huh. And the flower painting. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> well, that's that's just a hobby. I'm a very keen gardener, and uh, at one time I thought, well, I want to be able to, to draw the, the things that I see. So I took um, some lessons in... Uh, um, in botanical drawings from uh, Ben de King, who works in, in um, oh, I cannot remember which university, but it's in eastern USA. She has certainly done it for a lot of years. I don't even know if she still lives. Uh, well, tell us how you got involved with, um, with Eric Flint's uh, 1632 universe. Sounds like you've been involved for quite a number of years now. Yes. I've been a barflies um, for well mo almost twenty years now. Uh, it, well, I, I really started at Barnes Bar uh, while um, looking for um, sample chapters for Louis McMaster Pujol. I'm very fond of Louis McMaster Pujol's books, mm -hmm. and then I found the bar and looked for a while and. 
then I joined in and started participating in the various discussions. And then at one point, uh, Eric Flint uh, was gathering uh, short stories for uh, the first uh, Ring of Fire uh, anthology, and he uh, uh, made an offer to the Barflies that we could submit short stories alongside with professional authors such as uh, Mercedes Lackey. And I submitted uh, the first, the first uh, commercially intended uh, fiction I'd ever written. I had uh, several scientific papers uh, uh, published, but that that was the first attempt I really uh, made for writing fiction. And um, well, after a rewrite, it was accepted uh, uh, and included um, under the title of Family Faith. Uh, in the first Ring of Fire anthology, and um, well, the, the the first story there, um, the main character was a Jesuit priest and painter, Johannes um, Greenwald, Green, Greenwald um, who uh, rebelled against his superiors after the destruction of Magdeburg, and I, I took him as a as a, my main character to to. Well, most of the past light at the time were writing about the Americans. Uh, of course they did. But I wanted um, a European main character and preferably one with a religious background because the, the Thirty Years' War was, at least on some levels, uh, a religious war. And I wanted to do something about that. Um, and that was that was my first story in the Ring of Fire uh, universe. And it was followed by... Um, a second story, uh, A Question of Fate, which was published in uh, the Grandville Gazette, both in uh, uh, the uh, publications and in, in paper. But when I then wrote the third uh, short story about Father uh, Johannes Greenwald, uh, I was invited to uh, join with um, the Torturer Fulda project. The Torturer Fulda uh, project um, was intended to... Um, deal with the western frontier of the United States of Europe. And um, it was it was named after a character created by uh, Virginia Demarque uh, in her uh, short story Prince and Ambert, uh, no, Prince and Abbott, um, Felix Gruyard, who was a torturer. Uh, and, well, we, we've, Eric Flint, uh, um, gathered a, a group of barflies, and uh, we were supposed to write a series of, a seri uh, uh, no, write a collection of uh, short stories uh, which would settle that frontier and, and deal with that. Um, I don't know if, if there's been a podcast uh, about uh, the Torture of Wilder Project, if anyone has ever mentioned it. No, we haven't. We should maybe... Maybe uh, get a group on and, yeah, and talk. Well, about we it. we started out as a group of barflies. I think we were five, six, or perhaps even seven at the beginning. Plus, of course, Eric Flint. And um, well, several people dropped out for various reasons, couldn't find the time. But uh, eventually, we were uh, three barflies writing uh, interlocking stories, starting uh, at essence around uh, um, the. Um, Marshal Turon's uh, raid at the oil fields, and um, uh, the Duke of uh, Julik Berg's attack on Essen, and uh, there was one person who was supposed to write about that, and 
from that uh, it should move up the Rhine to uh, Cologne, where I was supposed to write about um, the uh, Duke of Hessen uh, Castle's attack on uh, Cologne. And from there on, it should pass further up the Rhine, where Virginia uh, would take over the story and, well, basically do whatever she wanted with it. And around that kind of backbone, uh, Eric Flint would write his stories. That was the intention, and that didn't happen. Uh, um, I'm not really certain what happened to the Essence story, but uh, Virginia's story was instead included in uh, one of her own uh, um, books, and Eric Flint, well, he, he, I, don't, I don't really think he had the time, uh, <laughs> uh, of course. I'm sure it's still so on he, his plate somewhere. <laughs> the, what? I'm sure it's still something he plans to do at some point. But he, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure he planned to do it, and we, we talked about it and discussed it. Yeah. Uh, who, was, who were the three that remained in the uh, Torture of Fulda project? Uh, I, Virginia was one? Virginia was one, and I was uh, the one... Well, in the middle, where I was basically intending to uh, catch the storylines from the the essence stories and pass them on to uh, Virginia further up the Rhine. But anyway, in the end, I I had uh, um, my story uh, centered around Colonia. I call it the Colonia Cabal, uh, with um, Charlotte uh, von Zweibrücken and... um, General Melcher von Hesfeld as the main characters and with uh, the Archbishop Ferdinand of Cologne and uh, uh, the Duke of Hessen Castle as the antagonist. Yeah, now that this is uh, this is the book we're we're discussing now, um, which is uh... was that was where I was left, but my part uh, was only intended to be about a fourth of a, a novel, as a quarter of a novel, and uh, um, well. I, I, I didn't really know what anybody else were, were doing, so I put it aside for a while and uh, wrote something else. I wrote two more uh, short stories, completely different uh, short stories, and some that had nothing to do with uh, um, with Father Johannes von Greenwald. Um, instead, I wrote uh, with Karen Offord, um we, we wrote a story together called Nobody Wants to Be a Pirate in the Baltics. And I uh, made a sequel to uh, that story called Frying Pan. They were very, very different from, from what I had all otherwise wrote, <laughs> written. Yeah, we've interviewed Karen uh, on the podcast before for uh, for the book he wrote with uh, Rick Boatwright, I believe. Is that correct? The uh, The Alchemist? Tales. I think I'm, I have that podca- podcast. Yeah. Well, um, so. But bef- anyway, but anyway, uh, you know, uh, my Colonia Cabal, it was well, sort of rested for several years, and then uh, Eric Flint contacted me, and we talked about uh, what we were to do about it because mm-hmm. the Torture of Fulda project. I don't, I don't think he believed in it anymore. Uh, so what should we do with my Colonia Cabal, which was far too big to be a short story, but not big enough to be a novel. Um, and he uh, asked if I would like to expand it into a novel. And I did that. I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't have the time to uh, rewrite it completely, but I'd had uh, uh, several uh, ideas that I had cut away from the main story. And those I, I added and expanded. And, um, well, in the end, 
that was a novel. Yeah. So, yes. So it had a, a kind of a, a odd background because it wasn't something I started writing from the beginning and all the way to the end. There was the the, the core story, and then all those fascinating <laughs> people running around doing other things. Well, it's a it's it's a lot of fun, and it certainly does hang together as a as a nice novel. Now, um, well, we thank should... you because I really tried very very hard, and in my head it it. Well, it it was it was a braid of a story, uh, but it did uh, connect, and I think I found all the loose ends and had them tied up. Yeah, and um, in some exciting ways. The uh, we should say before we go any further, for those who have no idea what we're talking about with the sixteen thirty two, is that um, this is three years after this West Virginia town of Grantville um, has suddenly appeared in the middle of Europe in sixteen thirty two. And there have been a lot of changes since then. Um, maybe you can give us uh, it, the Wars for the Rhine uh, political overview, maybe. So what, what's important about the Rhine as a river t in, in the story uh, and in general? Well, uh, the roads at the time were so bad and the railroad was only just starting. So quite a lot of traffic was along the rivers. And the River Rhine was one of uh, the main road, one of the main motorways uh, at the time. Uh, and it, it was possible for ocean-going ocean ships to sail as far up the river as Cologne. So Cologne really was the gate to the oceans for Central uh, uh, Europe. And uh, at, a time, at the time, um, the, the, the area around Cologne was Catholic, but the Protestant had conquered uh, a lot of area around it, and they were getting more and more isolated. So uh, um, in uh, this new universe, with the Americans arriving in the middle of Europe and uh, uh, starting the, the American Revolution uh, uh, out of time and out of place, uh, uh, but with quite a lot of success, um, it, it, there was an opportunity for um, the Hessel-Kassel province to expand and gain more provenance because Hessel the Hessel-Kassel area uh, wasn't much at the time and it, it, it really isn't much politically uh, today. So in order to gain importance, uh, they tried to expand uh, um, with with um, Cologne as their main target, uh, they they want to take that town, and so the Duke of his castle uh, tries to uh, conquer that. Uh, it the, that um, attempt is mentioned in Virginia de Mars's uh, short story, Prince at Abbot. Um, but I take that story and make it. Uh, uh, Central in uh, uh, my Colonia Cabal. This is what's the... also going on is that um, yeah. one of the prominent families around Colonia is the Hatchfeld family. It's a, it's a real historical uh, family, um, and um, there's um, a bishop that has been sent into exile. Exile, French von Hatchfeld. He was uh, in our universe. The arch, now, no, the prince bishop 
of Würzburg and of Bamberg. Uh, um, but those areas had been conquered by the Protestants. So he was in exile in uh, Cologne. And his brother was one of the main generals uh, uh, for the Holy Roman Empire. And he returns to Cologne. And uh, in in my story, he, um, he helps defend bond against the Hessian attack. Then into the uh, the story also comes the widow of uh, the Duke of Dulikberg, who gets himself killed by attacking by attacking by attacking essence, and his wife must then uh, flee. She is pregnant with what could be uh, the heir to uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, important areas, and those two uh, uh, peoples uh, that I mentioned. Uh, General Mel- Melchior von Hasfeld and Charlotte, uh, uh, the widow of, of Julik Berg, whose last name is Zweibrücken, um, those two become the center for my story. Yeah, and, those are, uh, yeah, those are our are heroes and heroines. Of most important, but I must admit that while I wrote that uh, part of the story, I was taken somewhat by surprise when Eric Flynn told me that those two people were the main love story uh, for the Torture of Fulda project, because I, I had really not seen them as a, as a love story. Uh, but I suppose that is what it is. Yeah, the, um, so we have, uh, we have, this is the area um, between Frankfurt and Cologne, something like that, that we're talking about mostly, or? Yes. Yeah. And Bonn is there, um, and um, there is a Protestant and Catholic divide at this point. As we, are the Hesse Castle uh, Hesse? Is it? It's the Hesse Castle uh, area is Protestant. It's Protestant, and and yes. they want to move down or along the Rhine toward the sea. Yes, and ta- take the last of the Catholic uh, areas. Uh, Along the Rhine, yeah. conquer those to simply to expand their their area. And we have um, Archbishop Ferdinand, who um, who's the Archbishop of Cologne. And he is Catholic, of course. And he's he's got a he's hatched a kind of crazy plan to um, yes to himself to gain take some of area. the areas that the Protestant has conquered. But it is it is a very complicated uh, political uh, situation and. Uh, I, I was I was very very much in two minds about how much should I pay attention to the politics because of course I couldn't ignore them uh, completely because it, the the politics of the area um, formed the basis formed the basics of uh, the intrigues uh, uh, around Charlotte and Melchior. And into this this sort of stew of of gathering battle. Um... We find Charlotta and and Melchior. Who who's Charlotta? Tell us more about her, and then more about Melchior. Yes, um, Charlotta, who's uh, uh, who is also a historic person. Uh, her full name is Katharina Charlotta von Zweibrücken, and she was one of several daughters uh, um, from uh, a, a, a duke uh, whose areas was further south. And she was uh, married to um, the Duke of Julikberg, who was uh, at least uh, three 
times her age. Uh, he was more than old enough to be her grandfather. Uh, but, um, she had she had um, had a, a son who died several miscarriages and was now pregnant with what was supposed to be uh, the heir if uh, um, her husband and his son of uh, first of his first marriage both should die. And that happens when they uh, attack um, attack essence. With the result that uh, Charlotte uh, is certainly, uh, you know, uh, the real price for anyone to get their hands on because uh, she is politically important and she uh, is uh, carrying the air to some very important areas. And she flees uh, from uh, Dusseldorf uh, to Cologne, uh, seeking uh, uh, refuge there, and is then... Um, uh, taking, well, under the protection, you could say, but in actually it's taken prisoner by uh, Archbishop Ferdinand. Um, and uh, uh, she gives birth to uh, her son while in uh, uh, in his captivity and also uh, um, under torture by Felix Grillard, as a, under torture of the torture of Fulda. Uh, um, because she won't give in to uh, the archbishop. So he, uh, Guillard is uh, a very harsh scenes uh, uh, in 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 that captivity. Yeah, uh, Guillard is Ferdinand's henchman. His uh... yes, his minion. Yeah. Yes. So she has to get out of there. Um... She, has, she has to get out of there, and uh, um, some uh, uh, people, her midwife and and uh, a, a local family helps her escape from uh, the archbishop and um, her path crosses uh, the path of uh, of uh, General Melcher von Hasfeld. Now tell us about him. Yes, well, he's also a historical uh, person. Um, the, the oldest son of uh, a minor uh, uh, baron uh, in the area, um, a very liberal uh, uh, family, um, very cultured, very educated, but not really uh, important until Melchia and uh, his brothers uh, um, gained prominence uh, at the time. Melchia um, started out uh, um, under um, the... Tutelands of uh, Valenstein, and uh, he was act actually one of uh, the the mercenaries uh, who um, who occupied parts of Denmark for a time. And I found some some very interesting uh, uh, Danish uh, records of his his stay here. So I got to to know a, a bit more uh, about him and. and uh, how he operated and also how he thought. He had, he had originally intended to become a, um, a Johannes Knight, a Knight of Malta, uh, but instead he had turned mercenary. Exactly why there are no uh, uh, records about But At the time uh, um, when he returned to uh, uh, Cologne, he is fairly wealthy and uh, um, in very good standing. Um, he serves the Holy Roman Empire and has got has been sent by uh, um, by um, what is he? He must be crown prince, uh, the heir to uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, sent to find out what is going on around Colonia uh, 
because that is one of the last remaining Catholic areas. Uh, and at the moment, he's separated from his troops, right? There, where are they? Somewhere he's separated there? from his troops. Uh, he, he is um, apparently going there to uh, um, to participate in the, the wedding of one of his youngest bro younger brothers. But he has a secret agenda because he, he needs to make reports about just what is happening around Colonia because Colonia is really important. Yeah. And Colonia so he, is important. Uh, he returns to, uh, um, to Colonia, find out what's going on, find out about some of uh, Archbishop Ferdinand's uh, plans, don't believe in them. Uh, and then he returns again to, uh, um, to Vienna uh, with his, his report and also tries to, to gain some support for stopping Archbishop Ferdinand because there's, there's, there's really no way his uh, uh, attempts to regain those land areas that they can succeed. It, it's, it's obvious and, and it serves no, no purpose. Um, so, um, so Melchior goes back to Vienna and then returns again uh, uh, to uh, Colonia with new orders and uh, by uh, the Holy Roman Emperor to act quite freely on their behalf and deal with the problems surrounding uh, Colonia. Yes, but he returned to Bonn just at the time when his when his his castle attacks, um, and he takes commands of uh, of Bonn where Charlotte is also hiding, and that's where they meet. Yeah. And the uh, the defense of Bonn, um, it leads him to, since he, he doesn't have, his troops are back in Vienna, right? Oh, so, no, they're, they're still there. Yeah. And he's dealing with the town garrison, trying to fend off these these folks. Yes. Is, um, how are the Hessen... Castles, different from the USC, um, they're allies, right? They are actually supposed to be a province, become a province of uh, of uh, um, the United States of of Europe, but they want to be a more prominent province. Mm. So they're kind of acting out of bounds in a way, or at least. Um... Well, part of the political uh, discussion is. Just how much does uh, uh, Emperor uh, Gustav Adolf actually know about uh, what the Duke of Hessel Castle is, is doing? But um, officially, he's acting entirely on his own. Yeah. And they are... Uh, one of uh, Melchior's, Melchior's uh, ideas is maybe um, that you could bring a Catholic area into the United States of Europe, this newly established entity, Right. Well, I, I don't. Um, I don't think uh, uh, that that's his initial initial uh, um, idea. But uh, that's that's what he ends up trying to do, yeah. simply to stop his uh, uh, castle from completely destroying uh, both Bonn and Colonia. How would you? Colonia is important because it is uh, at the fall line of the Rhine. Correct. It's yes. it's as far as you can get up the river by seagoing uh, craft. Yes, the the importance of Bonn at the time is mainly because it's the archbishop's uh, residence. Uh, the archbishop uh, 
is not allowed to enter Colonia unless he is uh, there to perform some kind of, of uh, clerical duty. Colonia is um, a free city. Uh, um, sort, of, sort of, well, it's difficult to, to uh, uh, explain what it is, but it is kind of a, a, a miniature uh, state. Uh, what, what one must remember is that at the time, there weren't the kind of uh, big countries. Germany wasn't Germany. Germany was uh, hundreds of small areas, more or less independent, more or less allied. Uh, that's one of the reasons uh, things got so complicated during the Thirty Years' Wars, because not only was uh, uh, people, people fighting Protestants against Catholics, but they also changed alliance. There was actually, uh, uh, in many areas, where uh, when the ruler, which could be a, a knight or a baron or a duke or, or something like that, when he changed from being Protestant to being Catholic, because that was the political thing to do at the moment, then everybody was supposed to change with him. So it it, it could get really messy and... Uh, Heritages, uh, um, no legacies, um, meant that some areas were completely uh, encircled by areas uh, belonging to to an enemy uh, of, of of one kind or another. Uh, so, so it it it's not a mosaic um, of nations the way Europe is today. It was. Tiny little fractions, uh, more or less independent, and well, it was really, really complicated. If you look at some of the maps uh, uh, in the books in, in uh, the Ring of Fire uh, series, uh, you, you you can see what what a jigsaw puzzle that really was. Well, you have um, a lot of discussion of some of this among the. One of the things I really like about this book also is that. Um, Although you have a, you know, you have some great uh, battles and fighting, you also have many strong women characters who are just as good at manipulating events as men, maybe even better. Um, is uh, tell us about uh, some of this, uh, like Maxi, and um, I mean, it feels pretty historically accurate. Was this the case? Um, uh, that Maxi were... uh, or Maximilian um, is a historical person. Um, she uh, is uh, the uh, illegitimate daughter of um, oh, a brother to the Duke of Bavaria, um, and um, she she was given the title of Countess uh, uh, when she was born, but later renounced that to become a nun. And I don't know very much about her, but I know that at one point. Uh, she was very um, uh, a very passionate worker for women's right to social seclusion. That was um, a cloistered uh, thing. Whether a person should be able to enter uh, total um, isolation and concentrate entirely upon uh, God and faith and prayer and some men did that, but women weren't supposed to do that. Women were supposed to uh, 
to work uh, uh, and uh, pray and nurse and uh, earn, earn their own living and things like that. And she worked very hard uh, in um, Munich, uh, in Bavaria, where, where she lived at the time, to uh, gain women uh, the right to do so if they chose, uh, uh, of course, because it, it was a choice, it was a privilege to, to end the total seclusion. And what I, I uh, uh, took at the base of that story was, what if she was blocked from that? What if people who she thought supported her had betrayed her? And that gave quite a lot of anger in a very competent woman. And um, she is not someone to trifle with, to, mm -hmm. to put it very plainly. But she um, she goes to um, to uh, Cologne to uh, nurse her cousin uh, that uh, the Archbishop Ferdinand when he falls ill from uh, ulcer, you know, a, a wound in the stomach. Ulcer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yes. Um, nurses him, and then uh, instead of going back to Munich. She uh, accepts a position uh, with the Hatchfeld family, helping them getting their uh, new household in order. They uh, has uh, they have a, a large but very old uh, complex of buildings in um, in Cologne, and uh, as because of all the fightings there are, they withdraw the family from their holdings and take. Uh, uh, and gather them in uh, uh, Cologne, and uh, uh, Maxi is is uh, then uh, uh, asked to help them bring their household in order. One of the people uh, who helps them uh, uh, establish their new resident is Father Johannes Greenwald, whom uh, um, Bishop Franz, uh, uh, Melchior's younger brother, uh, hires to. Um, to, to go to, to Colonia and help them with the building and to uh, also uh, um, tell them about the Americans because Father Johannes has stayed in uh, Grantville for quite a while. That's the American mining town that was moved. Yeah, he is, um, he's a, a painter and a, uh, he helps design the... Yes, 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 as a, as a painter and uh, uh, someone who knows about art and decoration and things like that. Yeah. He... Um, he helps them decorate. And he uh, becomes uh, friends. House. He becomes friends with Melchior, our uh, our gen heroic general. <laughs> he becomes what? Friends with Melchior. Yes, yes, he becomes very close friends with um, with Melchior and with Maxi, and also who with, is a hat, with Melchior's uh, uh, yeah. youngest sibling, who is uh, their only surviving sister, Lucy. She is uh, a cripple. Uh, um, after a carriage accident, and also, of course, a, a historical person. And uh, there's a um, small, well, could you call it a side love story uh, between uh, Father Johannes Greenwald and Maxie and Lucy. So um, not uh, uh, anything uh, obvious or, or those those three people becomes quite fond of his, each, each other. Yeah. It's a very nice uh, uh, subplot to the story, and uh, so because Father Johannes didn't expect that and don't really know what to do about those two quite headstrong women, is 
especially uh, Maxi. Well, eventually it's it's resolved. We don't want to give away the uh, any of the ending, but that that's a fun uh, fun uh, part of the book. Um, as far as the uh, battles go, um, how do you lay siege to a town? Um, what oh. what did the Hessen uh, castles yes. do to Melchior and his uh, defensive? Hessen start by attacking Bonn uh, um, simply because that's that's where there is a, a ferry. That's the most uh, direct road from um, from Hessen castle and and down to uh, the Rhine. But Bonn is on the other side of the Rhine, so they try to attack across the Rhine, uh, um, which with some success. But uh, they they take they take a single tower, uh, but cannot take the rest of, of Bonn. And um, the the problem uh, with uh, with sieges at the time is. Um, one thing is to get the men there, get the cavalry there, get what can march there. But if you want cannons along very bad, bad roads, uh, uh, it creates a problem. So uh, the cannon cannot, cannot get there from the initial uh, attack on Bonn. So Hessen Castle must bring the cannons later. And... In between uh, uh, the failure of the initial attack and the cannons get there, they try to uh, um, um, block the roads uh, with cavalry and stop people from moving around, stop uh, supplies from getting into not just Bonn but also Cologne. So uh, as that, that, the, the towns at the time were walled, so you needed cannons to get in there unless you could take it by surprise, unless you could buy uh, uh, your way in with treachery. And that that moment between uh, when the initial forces arrive and the uh, the cannon is, is Melchior's uh, chance <laughs> to be able to, to... It's his chance, and it's just at that time when he arrives. He arrives uh, on, on his way back from, uh, uh, from Vienna, um, to uh, a town outside uh, uh, Bonn and um, hears soldiers talking about uh, uh, the attack of Bonn that has happened. I don't really remember if it's the day before or something like that. So he knows what's going on and he managed to get into Bonn before uh, uh, the Hessian troops uh, encircles the town. And the rest is alternate history, as they, as they say. So, um, what are you uh, what are you working on now? Now that uh, this book is behind you in these. Well, I'm I'm working on on two books actually because uh, um, I want to take the more colorful characters from uh, from um, the wars for the Rhine and send them along the Donau uh, to a rescue. Uh, in um, 1636, uh, and I, I want to bring one of the uh, people from um, from those sort of independent short story. Uh, nobody wants to be a pirate in the Baltic and frying pan. I want to take one of the characters from there and bring him into uh, um, into that plot. But here's a bit of a problem because. 
his, um, Lesser is his name, and he's an assassin. Uh, and he is such a twisted character that he really should be a willing, but he don't really fit that way as well. So I'm battling a bit with uh, uh, with Lesser at the time, uh, although I, I know the plot for, for the Donau story. Uh, so while I'm, you know, letting that rest and thinking about it, what can I do about Lasse? Uh, um, I'm also uh, working on something that has nothing to do with the Ring of Fire, um, a more uh, classic science fiction story about interstellar trade wars. So that's something completely different. Ah, cool. I'm working on two novels at the time because I keep stalling in, in one of them. Well, that's great. And, and look forward to... Uh to seeing what you come up with there, uh, especially if it's in the in the Lois Bujold mold. Um. Yes, it's 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 something like that because I I grew up on Andrew Norton and Robert Heinlein and and uh, those uh, more classic science fiction. Uh, and well, I really like alternative history, like the Ring of Fire stories, but uh, um, the 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 classic science fiction story. I'm I'm. I'm trying to to write at the moment. Uh, that that's based on the Andrew Norton Heinlein and uh, Louis Louis uh, uh kind of universe. So, well, that's eventually I I will finish one of those books. Uh, I, I I do think the Donau story uh, will probably be first, uh, but I'm I'm working on two at the moment. Excellent. Um... Well, the book that is out now is 1635, The Wars for the Rhine. It is now at booksellers everywhere. Well, Annette, thank you very much for being with us. Well, this was my pleasure. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy? The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the Rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 22 Hablinger on Coursera. The river Cephasis was an expanse of brown glass when Daniel looked over the left side of the APC. The water wasn't very far from the top of the levee either. Maybe the length of his forearm, maybe not that much. He dropped back into the compartment. Mundy, he said, being relatively formal because they were sharing the vehicle with Colonel Bourbon and two of his aides. When is high water? What part of the year, I mean? The peak here was about two days ago, said the female aide, Lieutenant Zeffolini, before Adele could answer. 
On the other side of the river, the road washed away yesterday in a couple places. Usually we'd be coming down on the west levee, though we can hop over the water easy. I'm not sure about easy, said Bourbon with a smile. Can you swim, Larry? Well enough, Daniel said. He didn't mention that Adele couldn't swim, but he or Hogg would carry her if the situation arose. But we should be fine. They were in the vehicle which had carried Hockner and his arrest team two days earlier. The slugs hadn't damaged the lift fans, but Bourbon had decided to make the hundred-mile run north to Hablinger in surface effect for safety's sake. The vehicle didn't lose much speed, and a motor failure on the road was an irritation. Failure 20 feet in the air could be a great deal more interesting, as Daniel and his companions had learned in the past. Daniel stood again so that his head and shoulders were out in the airstream. He lowered the visor of his helmet. The compartment hit a lid of pleated titanium battens, but it was rolled back at present. Gunfire during the attempted coup hadn't seriously damaged the vehicle, but there hadn't been time to fully clean the compartment. Muggy heat turned residues of blood and brains into a stomach-roiling stench. Downwind of the fish processing plant at Bantry was worse, but Daniel had no reason at the moment not to be out in the breeze. Hogg was in the cab with the automatic impeller, while Tovera rode on the passenger side of the cab, which would ordinarily have been the gunner's seat when the impeller wasn't manned. Tovera had wanted to drive the vehicle, but Colonel Bourbon had refused to permit that, and neither Adele nor Daniel had made any effort to overrule him. Tovera knew the basic theory of driving. She would never be good, though, and the APC was much heavier than anything she had experience with. At some level, Tovera probably understood that she shouldn't be driving, but her need to control all aspects of her mistress's environment had forced her to ask. To Daniel's surprise, Adele shut down her data unit and stood beside him. She surveyed the patties to the right. The land across the river was identical, but the Cephasis was too wide to see across at that point. Turning to Daniel, she said, I've never seen terrain like this. That is, I've seen imagery even before I began preparing to enter Haplinger. But the real thing is different from the images. She smiled, more or less. I prefer the imagery, she said. The rice paddies were forty feet below the road the vehicle was following. They hadn't been planted or flooded for over a year, but the ones Daniel could see were soppy because of leakage from the river. Weeds and self-seeded rice grew raggedly from the black muck. The dikes separating each field from its neighbors were about four feet high. The tops of the dikes were grass, but shaggy trees grew out from the sides and curved upward. Seed pods like lengths of orange tape dangled from some of them. I suppose the terrain is the same all the way to the city walls, Adele said. Her smile quirked again. That's what the imagery showed, though imagery didn't allow me to appreciate quite how muddy it would be. The mud deadened sound, Daniel said. He made his voice a trifle more cheerful than the words themselves required, but he was telling the truth. You won't clink on a stone, which is the sort of thing that wakes up even a Pantellarian guard. And Hogg will get you through, never fear. I won't pretend it'll be a walk in the park, but all you have to worry about is crawling. He'll take care of the rest. Daniel's voice changed in the middle of the final thought. Adele didn't need anyone to kill for her. Hogg would simply do the business more quietly and come to that. Adele was looking at him with her minuscule smile. She's thinking the same thought. Your little pistol doesn't make a great deal of noise, granted, Daniel said, finishing the thought aloud. 
but Hog is still a better choice. Even Tovera agrees about that, Adele said, which is high praise for Hog, and a relief to me not to have to settle the matter myself. The hill on which Hablinger rose, a steep-sided mound over fifty feet high, was the only interruption of the flat landscape. Daniel could easily make out buildings without using the optical enhancements of his helmet visor. They can see us from there, Adele said. Why don't they shoot? Because we'd shoot back, said Colonel Bourbon. He must have been listening for some time, but only now did he rise from his seat to join them. Isn't that the point of the exercise? said Adele. There were openings in the inner walls of the dikes they were passing. A few, two, three, in one case six, people, mostly men, were visible near each, sometimes sitting on the dike itself. Generally, but not always, their weapons were nearby. Sniping would force both sides to keep under cover and make the siege more unpleasant, Bourbon said. His aides were now standing also, apparently concerned that they were being left out. It wouldn't affect the military situation, though. Daniel nodded. Everyone would stay under cover, he said, in part showing that he understood, but also making sure that Adele did. The combatants would stay under cover, Bourbon said, correcting him. Hablinger can't be concealed. We don't have real artillery, but automatic impellers could level the town. It stabilized mud so the walls would shatter. He shrugged. The Pantelarians find billets in Hablinger much more comfortable than muddy dugouts would be. And of course, the townspeople are Corsirans, even if they happen to be under foreign control right now. Most of them don't care about independence, said Bourbon's male aide, a lieutenant. Daniel thought his name was Vanna, but Daniel paid more attention to young women than to men, whether or not they were in uniform. They're happy as long as the Pantelarians pay for what they take. I've noticed, Daniel said, trying not to sound too irritated, that the tenants at Bantry worry more about how their crops are coming in than they do about who the Speaker of the Senate is. The crops determine how well they and their families are going to eat. Quite right, said Bourbon. Though from his tone, Daniel had the impression that the Colonel's main concern was to stop his aide from arguing with the honored guest who had rescued him. This is where we'll cross the river, so you might want to get down inside again. He and his aides ducked into the compartment. Daniel nodded to Adele and dropped to his seat, just as the vehicle slowed and bumped down onto the Cephasis. Water spewed up on all sides. Though the river looked like liquid mud from above, its spray had its usual rainbow beauty in the sun. Some of the iridescent fog settled over those in the compartment. But it was better to be damp than to close the cover and drown if a lift fan failed. The APC lifted twenty inches in the air to clear the edge of the west levee, then slewed to the right along the roadway there so as not to plunge straight over the forty-foot escarpment. Only after the driver had slowed from the headlong pace at which they'd crossed the river did he nose his vehicle down toward the paddies. He angled his lift fans in order to keep the nose more or less level with the stern, though the latter was actually dragging on the slope. General good feeling between the sides or not, Daniel said, his lips close to Adele's ear. I'd expect somebody in Hablinger to take a shot at a high-value target when a single slug could take out the whole vehicle and everybody aboard. Tovera, who either had very keen ears or was aided by a concealed antenna, said, Pantelarians don't think that way. There was more contempt in those few words than even Hogg could have managed. 
the APC reached ground level in an eruption of gluey black mud, some of which rained through the open roof. Daniel grimaced at the smear on his left sleeve, but he supposed he might as well get used to what would be a part of life so long as he remained here. The driver turned hard to the left, back in the direction of Brotherhood, then turned left again. They rocked and bumped, dropped significantly, then dropped again and stopped. Daniel stood and looked around. They were in a sunken chamber made by welding structural plastic into a roofless box. The walls acted as a coffer dam against seepage from the soil. A pump whined as it threw a column of muddy water over the levee and back into the stream of the Cephasis. Even before the APC fans shut down, Bourbon's aides had loosed the catches to drop the rear ramp. Daniel waited before he followed the locals out of the vehicle. The box in which they had stopped was built around a smaller box, 15 feet by 15. The inner box was also formed from plastic, but it was roofed and all surfaces were covered with several layers of sandbags. Well, bags of dirt. Daniel frowned and Hogg, who must have been thinking the same thing, said, Get a good storm and those bags will be sliding all over creation and over anybody standing in this hole. It almost never rains here in the north, said Zeffalini, the female lieutenant. There was a sneer in her voice, or anyway, Hogg heard one. And your pump never fails? Because I want to know the manufacturer, if that's so. You get these bags wet and the soil comes through the cloth like soap, which gives you a few tons of slipping sandbags. Bourbon waved Daniel and Adele ahead of him down the ramp. I was expecting the Pantellarians to use bombardment rockets when we constructed this bunker, he said. That hasn't happened, and your servant's concern seems valid, Captain Leary. He wasn't replying directly to Hogg, but he spoke loudly enough for Hogg and Zeffalini both to hear. Colonel Bourbon struck Daniel as a modest figure as a military man, but a first-rate politician, which was perhaps a better qualification for leadership here on Corsera. A steel door opened in the alcove left in the sandbagged wall. Glad to have you back, Bourbon, said the man in the doorway. He wore blotch-patterned battle dress with the odd purple undertone of the fleet marines. His major's lapel insignia was alliance pattern also. We're all waiting for you inside. Figured it was easier than trusting to electronics, since it was all parties. I'm glad to be back, Wyron, Bourbon said as he led the others into the bunker. Frankly, the time I spent negotiating on Karst wasn't much better than being a prisoner on Ischia. Fellows, this is Captain Leary, who rescued me and has some thoughts about ending this business even before the missiles arrive from Karst. Leary, these are... The space was crowded with the new arrivals. Bourbon ran down the names. Wyron was commander of the naval contingent, clearly a mercenary whom Tibbs had hired. Major Gallard was the regiment's field commander, Pantellarian by birth, but not necessarily interested in politics. Brother Heimholtz, a sad-faced bruiser of fifty, headed the transformationist contingent. Graves in Brotherhood had described his background. Three miners were present, representatives but probably not leaders of the troops who weren't members of any official faction. Well, it's fine that you're out of jail, Bourbon, said a miner. Her hair was a natural mousy brown on one side and faded blue on the other. What I want to know, though, is when something's going to get settled here, so we can go back south where we belong. I don't remember much happening before you went off, except we got our asses shot off the onked by them ships. Now look, you, said Vanna, waggling his fingers in the miner's face. 
You watch your tongue or- Daniel expected the miner to slap Vanna's hand away. Instead, she punched the lieutenant in the pit of the stomach, doubling him up gasping. Zeffalini started to unsnap the holster of the pistol she wore as part of her uniform. Daniel reached across her body to grab her gun hand. That's enough, back off everybody, he bellowed at the three miners. A number of people began babbling, including the blue-haired miner. She appeared to be embarrassed at what she'd done. Tempers were bound to fray during months in these filthy conditions. Look, I got a question, said Hogg. Why don't you just blow the river? The bottom of the channel's what, 20 feet above the ground here? It'd drain so quick the wogs wouldn't be able to do squat to stop it. It was obvious that by wogs, Hogg meant the Pantelarians. Half the people in this crowded chamber were Pantelarian by birth, however, and it didn't require much imagination to guess that Hogg would have been willing to apply the term to an even wider circle than that. Daniel suspected that in the right context, Hogg might use wog to describe anyone who hadn't been born and raised on the Bantry estate. Bloody hell, said Gillard. Have you seen where our positions are, you farmer? We'd flood ourselves out. Hogg smiled. He had just focused all attention and all the anger on himself. He was the harmless rural boob that nobody here had enough history with to hate. It'd be wet here, I see that, he said complacently, his hands in the pockets of his baggy jacket. You'd have to pull back a ways, though that wouldn't be too terrible. And I was thinking that the Pantelarians might have worse problems without water to drink. By heaven, he's got something, said Major Wyron, looking at Hogg in amazement. No, unfortunately, said Bourbon quickly, though not quite quickly enough that Daniel hadn't gotten his own hopes up. There's so much silt in the Cephasis here that Hablinger has already taken its water from a desalination plant 15 kilometers out at sea and the plant is on the sea bottom to keep it out of storms, so there isn't a quick way of capturing it either. Ah, well, said Hogg. He yawned, then stretched his arms toward the ceiling. We farmers think a lot about water, you know. Colonel, said Daniel, do you have quarters for me and my personnel? I'd like to sort out some matters with my staff, with Adele, before I broach my proposals to you. If Daniel hadn't said that or something along those lines, someone, maybe all the locals together, would be asking what his plans were. He was going to know more about the terrain here before he wanted to suggest anything publicly. In addition, there was Adele's business, whatever that was. He would learn when it was time for him to know. We've readied a dugout for you, Captain, Brother Heimholtz said. He smiled, transfiguring his face. It's small, dark, and has no amenities so you spacers should feel right at home. I'll take you there now. Daniel bowed. I was afraid it was going to be a pavilion with four-poster beds, he said, since I know how you land force types treat yourselves. I appreciate you going to such effort to make poor spacers feel comfortable. They trailed out behind the transformationist commander. When they were clear of the inner bunker, Hogg muttered, I'm going to rock out now. Come dark, I'll go see what I can see. Yes, said Daniel. You and I will go. Also, I will be thinking about my own next step, unless Adele comes back from Hablinger and hands me the Pantelarian surrender. Which, Adele being Adele, might just happen. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. 
And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and to Chris Baracchio. And a fireworks show of Molotov cocktails made from the best selections of Rieslings for the past 20 years, plus a rousing, multi-voiced shout of Tak for ein Storbog for Annette Peterson, author of 1635, The Wars for the Rhine. Please join us next time here at the hammering part of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.